do love a good stat. Hello and welcome to Real Versus Feel, netball numbers that matter. A podcast with me, freelance journalist Erin Delahunty and Dr. Aaron Fox, a lecturer in applied sports science and research methods at Deakin University. In this weekly show, we align what it feels like happened in round eight of the Super Netball over the weekend to what the stats, the real, tell us. Of course, we wouldn't be here without our major sponsor, All In One Property. If you've purchased property, you know it involves tons of paperwork and stress. You've got to sort out conveyancing, finance and insurance, and that's if it's a simple deal. All In One Property can help handle every step or just one. Visit allinoneprop.com to learn more. I'd like to acknowledge I'm on the land of the Yoyota people in Echuca and Aaron is on Wadawurrung land in Geelong. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Well, Aaron, the Fever lost top spot and the Swifts moved on up. So it's fair to say this was a significant round in the context of the Super Netball season, do you think? Yeah, significant in shaping that top four. I guess last week we talked about the implications of this round for final spots. And mm-hmm. while there was a bit of movement within that top four, I think it looks pretty set now. Uh, but that is something that we're going to touch on later in the episode. Uh, but to start us off, let's look towards the bottom of the ladder and the Firebirds Collingwood clash. Yeah, look, the Firebirds got the four points with a 73 to 67 win against Collingwood in Brisbane. Um, It's been described as gritty by others and I think that's just about right. A number of Firebirds had excellent games, especially in the third quarter, which had a 19 to 12 scoreline and that pretty much settled the result. Um, Firebirds obviously got back-to-back wins for the first time since round 10 and 11 in 2021 Um, and the gains from goals probably jumped out you know really significantly in this game Aaron the Firebirds were seven from 12 and then the Magpies were zero from five which you very helpfully pointed out to me while we were working on our notes is zero percent gain to goal I I thought you might need some help with that calculation (laughs) thanks for letting me know uh Donnell Wallam I feel like this weekend she got a little bit overlooked she had 65 from 68 at 96 percent which is her biggest haul this year um the Firebirds had you know the best shooting accuracy this round combined 92 percent so to beat the fever in that stat is significant too for the Firebirds um was a pretty big net points to disparity as well 541 to 37 uh, 377.5 in the firebirds favor now aaron you're going to take a look at uh the thunderbirds giants game yeah and so the thunderbirds got away with the win here 54 to 50 but perhaps not their best performance of the year um you know, scoring 54 is is not going to win you many matches, uh, but you get the win. It's okay. Sixth match for the Thunderbirds to win this season, and if it's felt like a long time between drinks for Thunderbirds fans, <laughs> that's because this hasn't happened since 2014. This is a big deal. Um, yeah, you know, the, the Giants didn't have that super shot disparity again this round. They made five of 20 and the Thunderbirds made four of nine. So, and they were actually outscored in the power five period by the Thunderbirds. Uh, The shooting accuracy, you mentioned how good it was for the Firebirds in the 
last match, mm-hmm. you know, the Giants missed 20 shots from 65 attempts, which equates to roughly 69% shooting accuracy. And again, you're never really going to win a game with that sort of statistic there with your shooting percentage. It was the game with the most penalties in the round at 142. Uh, and an interesting one to think about here, the time in possession was listed as 54 to 46% in the Giants' favour. So hmm. more possession, but you know, probably that shooting accuracy did not help them convert into a win. Yeah, well, as you say, uh, they, were, they were taking so many shots, they did have it a lot, didn't they? Mm, but just couldn't make him. Uh, <laughs> now, you can take probably what was game of the round. Oh, thanks. Oh, I got it. Lucky. I mean, given how the round one clash between Fever and Vixens in Perth went, this game had a lot to live up to, a lot of hype, and it really did deliver. It's got to be close to being the best game of the year for me. The other, I mean, it's probably a close run thin with the Thunderbirds Fever match from earlier this season, but it really was just brilliant. And and for me, the phrase hard yak and netball kind of came to mind watching it. So just such hard work from start to finish. And of course, we saw Kira Austin, who had just a brilliant game. She sunk a super shot, her first successful one for the match, right at the death to win it. Um, We're going to dig into this game a little bit more further on into the show. But a few of the things, um, a few of the strange things, I guess, that stood out in this game to me, rebounds wise, Mike and Wenda had eight rebounds whilst the fever had seven. So that tells you something about what was happening in the respective circles. Um, Center pass to goal conversion, really high. The Vixens, 88%, fever, 82. Um, And in the fourth quarter, the Vixens had 100% center pass conversion, which is something Simone McInnes talked about after the game as being really key. Obviously, when the ball isn't getting turned over, we're not seeing players make mistakes that possession game is you know is is so important as I said we are going to dig into this but possession changes uh, jumped out at us as well Vixens only had 12 Fever only 15 and so few turnovers nine for the Vixens and 14 from the Fever Um, we're also going to have something to say about the gains later on in the game because it was yeah it was quite extraordinary to only see the Melbourne Vixens have seven of those, which if anyone's been listening to the pod for a couple of years, knows how important that that statistic is. So this was the first time the Vixens have ever had less than 10 gains and one. So this um, has had never happened in all of 2022 that we were sort of tracking it. In 2021, they had multiple games where they had more than, um, but still lost. But, we, you know, you have to go back to 2020, Aaron, you, you've told me, to find the last time they won a game with less than 10 gains, that magical number. And it was the grand final in 2020 where they had seven to win that game. So some pretty amazing synergy, isn't it? Mm, Spooky. (laughs) Now, as I said, we're going to dig into that a little bit later on. But now you're going to have a look at the last game of the round, the Swifts Lightning. Yeah, this put a pretty big dent, I think, in the Lightning's finals plans. Losing this one, it really starts to lose touch from the top four. And I know I've been on the lightning bandwagon, but I think I'm just going to discreetly hop (laughs) off. Um, So uh, it was a bit of a super shot shootout in this one relative to the rest of the round. It was the most made. 
the the Lightning, despite losing, made ten of thirteen, uh, more than the Swiss at seven for twelve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Steph Wood was a big part of this. The Lightning defenders, despite losing, still did kind of stand up as a group. Yeah. Pretorius, Irvin, and Dehaney, each having four games. Um, we talked about center pass to goal conversion in that last match. The Swifts in this one were sitting at 83%, uh, which is, again, quite high relative to you know, history of this statistic that would be up there in top 10. Um, and in contrast to uh, the Thunderbirds Giants, which had a lot of penalties, this was the lowest penalties for the round at 86 uh, but perhaps, uh, I guess, a telling statistic for me was that the Swifts were plus 11 on goal attempts. Mm-hmm. And so if you have that many more opportunities at goal, it is, you know, you're probably going to win most games. Yeah. And look, Helen Housby is just feels like the Pink Panther at the moment. She's just quietly going about her business, sneaking around. We're all worried about Eleanor Cardwell. We're all worried about other players heading into the World Cup. Meanwhile, Helen is just sort of quietly setting the world on fire. So she's one I'm very keen to see how she goes in the next couple of weeks leading into Cape Town. Now, our first deep dive today is what I'm calling the power of possession, which is all about what we just touched on, which is that extraordinary game between the Fever and Vixens. As I touched on, there was a very small number of possession changes, turnovers um, and gains. All those things were a feature. Every touch really did matter. Now, to start with, I thought it might be good for you to actually explain what constitutes a possession change because perhaps maybe what fans at home and at the game think is a possession change might not be the same as what champion data records it as. Mm, I, I think people would probably have a, a good concept of what it is because possession changes tracks exactly what it sounds like mm-hmm. when the possession changes teams at any point mm-hmm. except for after a goal okay. at the center pass if it changes there. So possession change could come from any general play turnover, whether it's forced via a gain like an intercept or unforced with a bad pass or a fumble. Uh, And the other time it can happen is from a defensive rebound after a missed shot, which is labeled in champion data as a missed shot turnover. So Mm -hmm. that's where we get possession changes from. It's been included as a stat in champion data's match statistics since 2018. Uh, And so that's where you'll probably see it from in that historical data set. So where do the teams rate on this this year? It's something we talk about a lot, but not all the time. Is it sort of too obvious to say top a you know top a good bad a bottom, or is there more nuance than that? Uh, it's it's pretty good descriptor, I think. As far as this season is going, average possession changes are pretty reflective of ladder position. So. Uh, the Thunderbirds are the obvious one bucking this trend. They are sitting at fifth for possession changes, okay. um, you know, more possession changes ranking you lower. Yep. So right at the top, you've got the Fever, the Swifts, and the Vixens as the top three. Oh, right. Uh, so they're almost, yeah, and they're in order as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty solid there relative to ladder position. Then the Lightning is sitting at fourth. Then you've got the Thunderbirds in fifth, and then the Magpies, Firebirds, and Giants. So a little bit different to the latter, but you could almost take this possession changes order out and yeah. it would give you a really good indication of who's playing well. Yeah, it's it's pretty much there. So digging in, when it comes to the, the Fever Vixens, the Vixens had 12 and the Fever 15, and then the actual turnovers were 14 for the Fever and Vixens 9. 
are these two totals as it was feeling as you were watching it the lowest for this year? Is it what we saw basically in round one? I mean, I'd had a quick look at some of the other games this week, not any in particular, but um, say the the Giants and the Thunderbirds, In um, you know, the Giants had 28 and the Thunderbirds had 26. So the Giants had more themselves than this entire game combined. So yeah, was it as is the real as as the feel was? Mm, like we typically see at least one team getting over twenty possession changes. It's very rare, I think, to have both teams under twenty and then be so low under twenty. So if you look at the total for this match of twenty seven, it's the second lowest ever combined possession changes within a match since they started recording this since twenty eighteen, uh, and so. There's only one game that has had less and it only had 26 possession changes and it happened to be the 2020 grand final between the Vixens and the Fever, right? Unreal, yep, yep. So um, these two teams can have really uh, clean attacking matches in in recent years Um, and the Vixens, they've equaled their lowest number of possession changes from this 2020 grand final with 12. Uh, meaning the fever in that match had one less in the grand final than this most recent recent matchup with 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 12 possession changes by the Vixens in this weekend's match and that 2020 grand final are the second and third lowest ever for a team's possession changes within yeah. a game. Yep. And the lowest ever is only one less than this. It's 11 and it's by the fever, fever obviously. Yeah. <laughs> And it was actually in their matchup with the Lightning one week ago in round seven, uh, but the Lightning had 18 in this matchup, so right. a little bit more in total. In contrast. So, like, Fever and the Vixens in recent years, obviously really good at looking after the ball. If, and if you think about that across the course of the game as well, I was thinking about this looking at the numbers, you know, only having three per quarter, you know, averaging it out. So it means you're just so consistently looking after the ball, the chances that you're giving the other team to have a look are, are so few and far between um so oh, that's the the positive side of it what about the highest then the the worst and I, I guess this probably translate translate feels feel wise into a scrappier uglier game of netball to watch you're probably right there so just think that we were talking about numbers like 26 and 27 possession changes total within a game just then the highest ever was 78 in a round 14 matchup between the thunderbirds and the swifts back in 2018 where the thunderbirds had 46 and the swifts had 32 possession changes uh and the swifts won this game 69 to 41 so oh gosh the Thunderbirds had more possession changes than goals scored, right? Um, well, which is I mean, not great and probably would have felt pretty untidy. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could probably make the argument that it was exciting because you were seeing things happening all the time. I don't know. I'm trying to play. It, it, it would have been there. a very fast-paced back-and-forth game yeah. based on those possession change numbers. A tough one for the the statisticians, the callers and the receivers sitting on the sides, I would imagine. Mm, definitely. Um, now, at the risk of being a little bit Vixens-centric here, um, our next subject is Austin Powers to Cape Town. See what I did there, Aaron? 
Very good, very good. Is of course all about Kira Austin's MVP game against the Fever. She was too good to ignore. Um, as I wrote in my talking points column for Fox Netball this week, Austin just quietly reminded the world while she's why she's next in line and maybe even first in line to be a little bit controversial for the Diamonds starting goal attack bib at the World Cup um, in this game against the Fever. She had 129.5 net points, which feels like Janelle Fowler areas to me. 23 regular shots and one clutch super shot on the final whistle to win the game. She also snagged two intercepts um, and she had four deflections, none with a gain, but that's kind of helped her maintain her reputation as one of the game's best defensive attackers, which we talked about um, on our last episode. I mean, it, it felt like, it looked like, it sounded like, it walked like it was her best game ever. Aaron, for the Vixens, was it? You ask me this a lot about players, is it their best game ever? Uh-huh. It's a very difficult thing to quantify. <laughs> um, if we're looking at that net points statistic you yep. mentioned, this is her highest ever by quite a decent margin. She had one game of 112.5 back in 2020 with the Giants mm-hmm. and 94.5 in round 10 last season was her highest for the Vixens. So big in that holistic sense, you know, yeah. it's, it's a big difference to her best. From a deflections perspective, um, it's near her best efforts. Two times in her career, once with the Giants and once with the Vixens, she had five deflections. Mm -hmm. And it's the third time only in her career where she's had four deflections in a game, the first time this year. Uh, Her top three made shots in her career all came with the Giants. So in 2020, she had a couple of 30-goal performances and one 31-goal performance. But this is the highest number of shots she's actually made uh for the oh no sorry the highest number of made shots have the vixens was 29 in round four of 2022 okay but the 20 the 24 on the weekend equals her second highest number of made shots for the vixens so from that scoring load perspective one of the higher ones for the vixens over the weekend yep and what about intercepts because that's what everyone tends to focus on that she does actually win the ball for her team as well yeah not her best for intercepts so had a game of four intercepts when playing for the Giants in 2020. The two intercepts, though, is, you know, her equal third highest in a match ever. Um, So still up there and and not something that happens too often. So, like, aside from the net points, no individual stat here was her best ever. But when we talk about these uh, great games from individual players this year, it's often when everything comes together at once. So, like, the, the number of shots she made, the number of deflections she had, the number of intercepts weren't her best ever, but they're all coming within the same game. And, yeah, when you look at the net points being so high, it's, it's indicative of a fairly well-rounded and probably, you know, one of her more complete games. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, the one thing we, we obviously can't ever track and net points is never going to be able to to measure is is that calmness to actually shoot that shot. doesn't matter how many more you've shot before, if they're super shots, if they're not, to win the game, 7,500 people screaming your name, you've got both defenders standing beside you. I mean, that's got to be 
20 net, net points or 30 net points, the same as the a rebound off of the last missed shot for a defender would be would be similar. So it was great to see her to get the, uh, obviously to get the MVP. Now, our last subject today is something a little bit different for us. I wanted to use your brilliant mind, Aaron, to help fans of teams who are currently sitting outside the top four. We've talked about now it almost being set in concrete now who is going to play finals to try and help those fans understand what their sides need to do from here to play a role in the final. So a bit of a finals calculator, if you will. And I mean, I know there's a myriad of possibilities left from here, but I'm hoping you can translate it into something simple and digestible for me and the listeners. But I did wonder, did you groan when you saw this on the rundown? Uh, a little bit because sometimes I wonder if you understand the complexity (laughs) of what you're asking, Erin. So, or I don't care. I I don't mind because you have to do the work, not me. Yeah. And I I do like complex questions, but with the games that are left across the season, and I think I've done the maths right on this, um, with the 24 games over six rounds, there are 16,777,216 total possible combinations of win-loss <laughs> outcomes across the rest of the season. So, I mean, I did try a brute force approach of simulating every one of these possible outcomes, but the noises and heat <laughs> coming from my computer were not, didn't sound that great. So I kind of stopped that. You don't have a supercomputer down there at Deacon that you could call in for this. It was just your Toshiba laptop trying to work Yeah. Out. <laughs> yes. Okay. It so wasn't going well. Okay. So I'll take it as read that it's not as, I didn't think it was simple to be, to be fair. Um, but I think when I asked you about this, I, th- I thought maybe could we work on the idea that certain favourites in inverted commas will win particular games? Because it's very simple to say, well, the, Collingwood win every game for the rest of the season. They can play finals. Well, of course, that's the case. Were you able to sort of drill down into it like that? Yeah, so we can look at two extreme scenarios. So firstly, let's take a look at what would happen if, based on ladder position right now, all of the favourites won. So if right now you're sitting higher above the ladder on your opposition, you win. And unsurprisingly, if we do that, we get a finals of the Thunderbirds in first, Fever in second, Swifts in third, and the Vixens in fourth. So the the ladder positions aren't really going to change with the combination of games we have left. Yep. On the other extreme side of that, if all of the favourites lose, uh, we yep. some we somehow get the Firebirds on top, uh, <laughs> followed by the Magpies in second, and then the Swifts and the Fever are going to take that third and fourth place in the finals, which would be an outrageous scenario to happen, I think. Um, all of Beckbully's Christmases have come at once. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know how it's going to happen, but it could. Of course. Uh, to... To get a broader idea of the probabilities of what actually might happen, though, what we instead of simulating those 16 million possibilities, <laughs> we can take this random sampling approach. It's called a, a Monte Carlo approach where we simulate the end of the season 100,000 times instead of 16 million. Um, but I did take some liberties with the probabilities of what would happen in these matches in namely that the outcome of each game was completely random probability. It was a 50-50 chance. Okay, so you didn't, you didn't tell the model, I want Fever to beat Swifts this week. I want Vixens to lose to Collingwood in this. Yeah, okay. 
No, the proportion of those favourites versus roughies winning is 50-50 here. Cool. Um, and, but as part of this, I did record the proportion of matches that our expected favourites won based on current ladder position. So this okay. Monte Carlo approach, 100,000 season simulations, that's what we're doing. But why Monte Carlo? Just gambling? Like why? Yeah, okay. good guess. Okay. I, okay. So I actually, I use this technique a lot and I actually learned something when you asked me this question that the people who developed this technique actually named it after you know the famous casino location oh. in Monaco because it shares the same random characteristics as a game of roulette. Oh, so, see, street smarts, book smarts. Yes, you're, smarts. you're teaching me right now. <laughs> Not much. So if we do this sort of random simulation approach, the most common combinations in the finals we see from these simulations, mm-hmm. um, not surprising, Thunderbirds, Fever, Swifts and Vixens making sure. the finals. Sure. Um, so, like, and, and the probabilities of when this is happening, the Thunderbirds in this random approach have a 98% chance of making that top four. The Fever, 97.8%. The Swifts, 90.5%. And mm-hmm. the Vixens, 87.5% of these scenarios okay. are making the finals. Mm-hmm. It then drops down for the Lightning to 15.6%. Wow. Yeah. And then the Giants, Firebirds and Magpies are sitting around the 3 to 4% mark. And so if we look at the top four, if 90% of the remaining games are won by non-favourites, so even lots of those rough chances getting up, mm-hmm. the Thunderbirds, Fever, Swifts and Vixens are still likely making the finals. Oh, even uh, with that happening. Yeah. So oh, the favourites don't really need to win that much uh, for them to still make finals. You look down the bottom at the Firebirds and Magpies and um, they need at a minimum 30% of games to be won by teams lower on the ladder for them to really have a chance of pushing up to final. So my prediction here is that the top four right now is going to be the top four at the end of the year. In the order it's in? Uh, You're just going to go with the four. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I mean, uh, yeah. Thank you so much for blowing up your laptop to do that for us. It's it's really quite fascinating. Well, I'll actually tweet out all of that data so everyone can kind of get across it. I realise there's a lot of numbers in there. Now we have a special offer from our major sponsor, All-in-One Property. Real VFIELD listeners know by now that All-in-One Property can help home buyers with conveyancing, loans, property law and insurance. They can link you in with a bunch of property services so you can have one point of contact instead of many when purchasing a place. And the best bit is you can use all the services or just some. It's a one-stop shop for when you're buying a home, helping you handle the conveyancing, finance, insurance and property law paperwork, reducing stress and saving time. And for a limited time, if you reach out to All In One Property and mention the podcast, you'll receive a, you'll receive 10% off conveyancing services. Visit allinoneprop.com or call 03998244491 to discover how you can benefit from the streamlined property transfer process. Now, Aaron, it is time for Fox Answers the Fans, and I'm so looking forward to this one. Uh, this one comes to us from one of our UK fans who uses the handle Netball Chat. They write, in a recent Manchester Thunder v Pulse UK Super League game, Pulse won score-wise 59 to 49. However, the penalties were 43 to Thunder and Pulse 73. So um, our listener was wondering how many times in Super Netball does the team with the most penalties 
win? Uh, and of those, how many, you know, what were the margins? And is, is it, a you know, it seems a big difference for a winning team, obviously, to have so many penalties. I thought this was a great one, Aaron. Mm, that match they're referring to is probably a bit of an outlier, uh, you know, a 30 penalty difference to a 10 goal difference. Uh, we can actually take this all the way back through the days of the ANZ Championship and Super Netball as penalties have been readily collected over both of these competitions. And if you look at the over the course of the years here, the team with more penalties has won about 31.75% of matches. So it's just under a third of every game, you know, one that's or more, two games. That's more yeah. than I than I think would be the case, right? Mm, I, I was a little bit surprised by it, mm. but I think uh, there's a lot of games where there's a small difference in yeah, penalties that, yeah. that's going to make a, yeah. uh, not going to be a huge impact on the match. Um, so the biggest margin in a game that meets this criteria was a win by the Thunderbirds over the Pulse in 2010, where they had two more penalties, so not that many more, mm-hmm. but they won the game by 35. Uh, so Pre-super shot too, yep. Yes. Uh, and flipping that, the biggest penalty differential in a winning match was by the Mystics against the Magic back in 2011, mm-hmm. where they had 42 more penalties. <laughs> And won the match by one. Brute force. <laughs> wow. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, so the most recent time this has occurred was when the Swifts beat the Lightning by one in round five this year and they okay. had 14 more penalties. Right. Uh, and perhaps a standout one for me, similar to what the question proposed or what drove this question, uh, was the Vixens against the Tactics in 2014, where the Vixens had... 31 more penalties mm-hmm. and managed to win the game by 24. Wow. I mean, yeah, mm. it's it's interesting, isn't it? it? Would It would be great to be able to break it down into quarters because you do often see the penalty count can swing and change depending on which umpire, obviously, is calling, you know, which end as well. But you would think that if you were out of play 31 more times than your opponent, they could take advantage of that on the scoreboard so thank you very much for that netball chat at at least get close you know not 24 down yes uh now segueing into Della Bluntly this week from penalties you know it's a little bit about penalties I think what you're going to talk to us about it is I mean this week I want to draw attention to a not so great trend that we're seeing and that's the growing number of uh let's call them expressions of exasperation that we're seeing on the super super netball court as players react to and question umpiring decisions earlier in the season michelle pippard who of course is a former super netball and international umpire and she currently uh, sits on the world netball's rules advisory panel she told me for a story we're definitely seeing a lot more verbal as she described it as strong reactions from players about decisions out on the court It's not a great look and it's getting more and more pronounced as the season goes on, in my humble opinion. Of course, we want players to be themselves. We want to see their personalities and reacting to something or chastising yourself for a mistake that you've made is totally different to angrily throwing the ball back or away or saying something loud enough that the umpire can hear or that, or it can be lip read on the broadcast, which we are starting to see. I mean, a quick personal declaration here. I'm definitely guilty 
of a little bit of eye rolling and thigh slapping at my grassroots level. So I should probably definitely take this advice myself. But as Michelle Pippard said, sport at the elite level needs to set an example. It doesn't matter if it's netball, if it's AFL, if it's NRL, if it's the Olympics. We need to set an example around the way that umpires are treated because we don't have to guess. We know what the flow on effect is at community level. There are clubs, sports, leagues screaming out for umpires. We don't want being abused to be seen as part of the job as an ump- of, of an umpire because it's not and it shouldn't have to be. And where the intention in Super Netball is to intimidate the umpires, and some some things in recent weeks feel that way to me, umpires need to step in, I think, and early, importantly, to stop it escalating. Let the players be human, of course, but I think it's a really fine line. You know, I'm glad you mentioned yourself in that because I was wondering <laughs> where you fit in the scheme of things there. So any one of Della's teammates out there, keep <laughs> us posted if she takes her own advice. Self-declaration there. It's definitely, it is mm. definitely a difficult thing when you're a senior player and you, you think you understand and, you know, we're all great umpires when we don't have a whistle in our hand, but it can, it, it can turn ugly really, really quickly. So it's now time to check in on how your shot in the dark went for the round just past Aaron on a bit of a theme today. Uh, Last week, you thought we would see a lot of possession changes in the Firebirds-Collingwood match. You tipped both to have above 25 and one to be above 30, but they did you dirty, Aaron. I'm sorry. Uh, There was only 17 and 20 possession changes respectively in that game. This is slowly becoming my least favourite segment of the show. (laughs) Um, Next week, a new segment. (laughs) So the Firebirds, they happen to have their least possession changes for the season in this match. They listen, Aaron. uh, They listen. did not help. (laughs) The Magpies had their third least possession changes for the season, and their least was actually 19 in round four against the Firebirds. So I probably should have known and had a look at that before I made this prediction. Uh, But, yeah, didn't work out again. So... What are we doing this round? Well, as you can tell, a I'm, big, on a bit deep of a, breath <laughs> I'm on a bit of a rough streak at the moment, Erin. Okay. And I've been looking at team and player trends for my predictions, which okay. are simply not working. So this week we're going into pure obscurity uh, for a prediction, and you're really going to need to stick with me on this one. Okay. Uh, because for unknown reasons, I was interested in... <laughs> player names and the length of player names, and if a player had ever had the same number of penalties in a match as letters in their listed name on the stat sheet. So that's where my brain's at right now. I don't know how your brain works. (laughs) This was probably like a middle-of-the-night thought that popped into my head. Uh, But, you know, if you're interested in this, out of 21,315 player stat entries over ANZ Championship and Super Netball history... This has occurred 547 times, equating to a proportion of roughly 2.6%. Not very often. So it seems it seems <laughs> low, but I'll get to why it's actually quite common in, in a little bit. Okay. Uh, but, you know, some examples of where it's happened this year. Sunday Arian has 12 letters and she's got 12 penalties in two matches this year. Right. Kate Maloney and Gabby Simpson, 11 letters each. 
uh, and have had matches with 11 penalties. Okay. Uh, and it actually happened three times over the weekend in round eight with Kelsey Brown, Kim Jenner, and Maddie Proud. Do you see everything in numbers? Is the whole world numbers? <laughs> like when you see a name, do you immediately count or immediately just know how many when numbers? I can't, how- <laughs> when I can't get any predictions right, yes. Uh, now, Erin, I know you're interested in who this has happened to the most times, sure, right? For sure. Um, Keep me awake Gabby- at night. <laughs> Gabby Simpson, 11 penalties on 18 occasions. Kate Maloney, 11 penalties on 16 occasions. And Maddie Turner has had 11 penalties on 15 occasions. Something so 11, about the 11s. It's a real sweet spot for those mid-quarters. Now, the next question you're obviously asking obviously. is what are the longest and shortest yes. names that this has happened to? Well, back in 2014, Ebony Beckford Chambers, and now I'm counting the hyphen as a character here, had 22 <laughs> penalties. Okay. And the shortest was also in 2014, Joe Tripp with oh. six penalties. Okay. So coming to the prediction, I know we've really been pushed for time this episode. We're really stretching it. We are. Uh, we've, got, we've got to get to the end. This okay. seems like a rare occurrence. I said 2.6% yep. of times, but... It does tend to happen almost every week. Round okay. seven this year is the only week that it didn't happen. Huh. Right. So the prediction this week is that at least one player will record the same amount of penalties as letters in their name. So everyone, keep an eye on it. This is quite brilliant. Like I, I genuinely don't know how your mind works and I love that it's so different to how my mind works. And now I'm going to have to sit down and make a spreadsheet and so I have all of the, the numbers of all of the players so that I don't have to think about it while I'm watching. I think it's indicative of how much I've lost the plot and connection <laughs> with this segment. I absolutely love it. Well, that's a wrap for our latest episode. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the hashtag RealVFeel and send us your Fox Answers the fans over on social media as well. All in One Property is a dedicated property service provider. It's a one-stop shop for when you're buying a home, helping you handle the conveyancing, finance, insurance and property law paperwork, reducing stress and saving time. Use all the services or just some. Visit allinoneprop.com to find out more.